right. Let's see what's going on here now. All right, I got that little screen in the right place, and this is in the right place, and uh, you guys are just going to be a, a pleasure to hang out with in the hangar this evening, aren't you? Oh, sorry, we're not oh, talking I'm, about I'm, that. I'm ready to put on my game face. All right, put on your game face. You got your beverages already? Got coffee. What are we drinking tonight? Ice water. Coffee. I'm with you. Ice water. Good old American tap water. I didn't even go buy bottled water. This is like kitchen well, sink. Well, I, I, this is tap water also. I, I Don't go there. <laughs> why, why, if, if we have tap water, why is there no ballet water? Or modern <sighs> jazz water, for that matter, right? Can we, can we pull his mic? Did you hear I did the podcast? Do you guys even listen to the podcast? I'm never even certain whether you guys listen to the podcast. But I did the intro. The opening of the podcast was done differently last week than than in past weeks. Did you even notice that? I didn't. You didn't even notice I, that. I, 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 I will. Notice. I will go back and notice. All right. But here's what I'm going to try. This is either cool or <laughs> incredibly corny. Somebody's got to say clear. 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 Clear what? Clear prop. <laughs> The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily represent the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. Welcome, folks, to episode number 57 of Uncontrolled Airspace, <laughs> the general aviation podcast. Uh, it's just clearly going to be a strange evening this evening in the, uh, in the virtual hangar. Um, we're recording once again. For a couple of weeks now, I've been saying we're recording on our non-standard date, but I'm coming slowly to the conclusion that we don't have a standard date, uh, yeah. day of the week, that is, because uh, we've been all over the place for the past few weeks. It's once again Friday, uh, almost Friday evening. It's late Friday afternoon, uh, November... 30th, 2007. Uh, it's about five, quarter to six here in the East Coast and uh, some different time in Kansas because he is still in Kansas. Kansas. So there's a Kansas. There's a Wizard of Oz joke there somewhere. We're still, in, yeah. we're still in Kansas Still in anymore. Kansas. That's right. We're still in Kansas anymore. Let me say hi to my friends who are with me here in the virtual hangar. Uh, one of those voices is Jeb Burnside. Jeb is, of course, an aviation journalist, currently serving as editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine and also as contributing editor to AvWeb Biz. And he's talking to us from uh, beautiful, I'm just getting more and more jealous every week, Sarasota, Florida. <laughs> yep, talk to me in February. No, uh, man, I am so, I so have the fall blahs and blues yeah. right now. I am just yeah. bummed out by, by well, the fact that it's... I, I will say this: that today uh, was, it was kind of um, I don't know, yucky. Um, woke up this morning; it was foggy, very low ceiling. I would call it pretty much zero zero as far as my skills would be concerned, and um, it stayed that way most of the most of the day. I didn't pay much attention until uh, just a little while ago, and it's getting on towards sundown here now. Uh, but they're finally. Finally, uh, did see some. We finally did see some blue sky, and uh, uh, there's still some patchiness moving through. But uh, um, so today was not a, a wonderful day in paradise. It was just a passable day in paradise. I hate you. Also yeah. with us in the hangar is Dave Higdon. Dave is an aviation photographer, a senior editor for Kit Planes magazine, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales magazine. Talking to us from the place that has a normal climate, Wichita, Kansas. Hi, David. Wichita, Kansas. How's everybody this evening? Uh, we're doing good. 
Yeah, we're, we're 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 fair as good as can be can, can be expected in those fair circumstances. Fair to partly cloudy. It sounds fair, like, fair uh, to partly cloudy. Yeah, that yeah. kind of mirrors uh, here today. Except uh, I'm not sure that it broke forty, and uh, the wind's <laughs> been kind of north to northwesterly, and it's supposed to turn rainy and drizzly tonight and settle in a little for the weekend, but not snow. We've already had an inch of snow. It really? lasted. It lasted eighty ninety seconds. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Right after our last cast, uh, we came out in the morning and uh, there was white all over the ground and vehicles and rooftops and the streets and the sidewalks were clean. Hmm. It was like somebody had manicured them because hmm. it cooled off just enough for the ground to let the snow stick. Very wet, wet snow, about an inch of it, but the uh, paved surfaces didn't cool off enough for it to to stick there. Yeah. So I can state with weird combination. I can state with great certainty that it will not snow here overnight. <laughs> and I am Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, goes. a freelance writer, and I'm a new media producer up here in uh, also normal climate ed, climate ed, Boston, Massachusetts. So, uh, so what's going on in aviation these days? There's a few stories. I mean, but uh, one thing is not a story, not a news story, but something I wanted to clarify. On last week's podcast, you, uh, Jeb, and uh, Amy were uh-huh. uh, bemoaning the fact that suddenly down there in Florida, you were seeing um, yeah. gas at the pumps. This is auto gas um, at right. the pumps uh, was suddenly placarded to uh, to contain a, a relatively high level of what ethanol, I think, right? Ethanol, ten ten percent, I think, is the percentage. Yeah, call twenty, but whatever the number was. It was well, notable, yeah, yeah. right? And yeah. uh, and you were both going, "Oh my gosh, that's really terrible." Um, can you elaborate a little bit on why that's terrible? And- sure. And, and I'm sure if Amy were here, she could she could uh, probably add even more. Um, ethanol, of course, is basically uh, a form of alcohol. It's a grain alcohol, and um, in this case, it's blended in with unleaded gasoline um, as a pollution uh, reduction agent. Uh, also, you know, to to stretch um, petroleum-based fuel supplies. Um, it's especially popular, of course, politically in the in the Midwest, where all the corn is ground from and is produced. Um, shucks, yes. Yeah, shucks, yes. Um, the problem with it is it's basically alcohol, and um, there's no basic about it. It's alcohol, and uh, <laughs> it is not compatible. With a lot of the fuel systems, uh, perhaps all of the fuel systems in general aviation aircraft, the seals, the O-rings, the gaskets, um, the tanks, if you have a a bladder like in my Bonanza, um, various other components of the fuel system are not designed to be in contact with alcohol. But but, so you can't you can't put autogas in, for example, your Bonanza, right? Of course not, but but an older Skyhawk or even an older Bonanza with uh, uh, what's known as an E series engine or uh, a carbureted IO or a carbureted 470 uh, engine is eligible for MoGas uh, because of the low compression uh, uh, nature of the engine. Uh, my IO 520 uh, is uh, is not even gonna be. Uh, eligible for MoGas, uh, MoGas STC anytime in, in the near future without some significant changes to the ignition system or, or some other things. But um, <clears throat> there are a great number of aircraft out there, and and I think uh, uh, Amy was bemoaning uh, the fact that the MoGas 
that she might put into her kit fox. And I don't know, you know, I don't want to put words in her mouth again. Um, I don't know if she burns MoGas in her kit fox or if she burns Avgas. Um, but um, I would guess that any MoGas with ethanol in it would be um, um, not approved for her kit fox. Yeah, it's not and recommended. Yeah, we, we had this problem, I won't say problem, but the, this this cropped up in, in the Washington area uh, a year or so ago when they started adding the ethanol. And all of a sudden, people who were legally operating their aircraft on MoGas I couldn't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the stations in the areas, depending on you know where they got their their bulk uh, uh, product from, uh, were f- pretty much, I guess, had no choice but to accept uh, the ethanol. There were, um, I understood anyway at the, at the time, there were some stations that offered unblended um, uh, gasoline, i.e., just straight gasoline. Uh, but those were fairly few and far between. In the D.C. metropolitan area, every place I went, uh, the fuel had ethanol in it. I would I, I parenthetically add that it's not real good on uh, vintage motorcycles either. Really? Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Well, and it, it, it's also uh, a lower BTU content, so you arguably mm-hmm. lower the uh, uh, power of the engine when you put 15% ethanol. In uh, in the gasoline and and then feed that to an aircraft engine. Right. Uh, it's designed to run on a minimum octane rating uh, on gasoline, which has a higher heat content per pound than alcohol. Or higher uh, BTU content. Yeah. And, and there are airplanes out there that are modified and for and fly very nicely on 100% ethanol, mm-hmm. but they're modified to do that. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, their fuel spe- systems are specifically set up for that. Uh, professor so down at Baylor University was even promoting it back years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, never really caught on. Meant you know having another full fueling system at airports and FBOs, and uh, and then people having to convert their airplanes, and uh, the engine makers weren't interested in doing anything with it. So uh, it, it just kind of lost steam. So if we're reaching the point where you can no longer find pure gasoline out on the street, um, does this just defeat the whole virtue of being able to use auto gas in airplanes at all? Or what's the alternative? Well, I wouldn't word it in that that exact fashion. Um, But the the upshot of it is that Peterson and EAA, whom I understand are the only two uh, organizations offering um, the MoGas STCs for various aircraft, uh, both as well as the FAA, have cautioned um, operators not to use ethanol uh, in their aircraft fuel. It is not approved. Period. Um, the 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 re, the um, I was going to say the reaction, the response by an operator who wants to continue to move, to burn uh, MoGas in their airplane is to do some legwork and find a gas station that still offers unblended MoGas um, and get real good friends with them. Mm-hmm. And I believe there's a uh, test kit that you can get yes. to check gasoline for, uh, for alcohol mm-hmm. uh, just to make sure that you don't get yourself in a bind. And... Uh, uh, it I don't think it's a particularly yeah. bad timing because we also have at this moment environmental organizations petitioning the Environmental Protection Agency 
to uh, require aviation mm-hmm. to stop using lead in the uh, mm-hmm. in the low lead fuel that we use. Yeah, which is kind of exactly. problematic because there's no there ain't nothing else available out there. substitute right now. No. And kind of silly, considering the extremely small footprint uh, that GA yep. aircraft uh, impose on the system, uh, because of small numbers and uh, relatively high fuel efficiency on average compared to a lot of surface vehicles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I understand. Um, I think it's Friends of the Earth that is uh, has petitioned the EPA, and, and EPA has has taken their sweet time about um, requesting comment on that petition. Um, I understand where Friends of the Earth is coming from, but there isn't an alternative. And um, I would consider, you know, out, if, if they outlawed Hunter Lowlad, I would consider that to be an illegal taking, and I would have a lawsuit against somebody. Yeah. Um, because it would make my uh, airplane and my investment in that airplane um, next to worthless. Um, it would be worth something. The engine perhaps is an airboat, and the airframe perhaps is beer cans. But that's about it, and I would not be a happy camper. How ser- now, so just for to be clear here, we've moved over now from talking about ethanol to talking about lead. Eth- the ethanol in gas problem is a relative is a problem for a relatively low number of pilots, correct? Well, there's a significant number of airframes out there. Okay, that that are qualify. I guess the point I was tra- about to make is that the lead in the gas problem is a problem for a lot more pilots. Right now, it's a here I, yeah. and now problem. Absolutely right. Right. The, the, well, the, the yes and no. I mean, the, the petition that the Friends of the Earth has submitted to the to the EPA um, asks for a rulemaking. Um, the EPA is taking what I would consider a fairly cautious path here, uh, and soliciting public opinion, public um, input on um, the Friends of the Earth petition. And you know, are there alternatives? What are those alternatives? Uh, are those alternatives in uh, existing fuels? Are there are alternatives in um, um, modifications to existing engines? What will be the performance degradation, if any, uh, from these modifications, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? It's a fairly, you know, I'm not a big fan of the EPA, but in this instance, they, they did do a creditable job of asking the correct questions and doing it in a fashion that gives the public plenty of time to respond. Lead is, is tetraethyl lead is, is nasty stuff. There is no question about it. There's a lot of nasty stuff out there in the world, though, and, and uh, uh, the, the um, percentage of Hunter low lead fuel when compared to regular unleaded is, um, uh, I don't know, what is it, one-tenth of one percent worldwide, something like that? Something like mm-hmm. that, yeah. It's, it's, it's down in the noise level, um, but it is a major source of lead in the environment, uh, my understanding. I, I don't, I'm, not a, uh, I'm not an ecologist by any stretch of the imagination. So he, he, there's a balancing act here, and um, um, yeah, I guess my, my first reaction would be to tell friends of the earth to take a hike. Um, but it's not that simple, and um, um, we, we, we all have to come up with a solution here. The, um, um, I think 30% is the rough number that's being bandied about. Um, uh, the number of piston aircraft in the general aviation fleet in the U.S., which would be grounded if there were no 100 low lead or no leaded gasoline of that 
approximate octane available. Um, hmm. my, 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 not higher. Yeah, my airplane would be one of them. Yeah. Now, there's keep in mind there's three different kinds of for our for our discussion here. There's three different kinds of of aircraft uh, being talked about. One is um, the lower compression, 80 octane ty- types of airplanes that um, can be run on MoGas. That's at the low end of the spectrum. At the, at the high end of the spectrum, there's uh, the airplanes that are high co- have high compression engines. They cannot run on anything other than uh, anything that exists now, let's put it that way, other than 100 low lead without modification. And in the middle is a huge number of airplanes that um, with um, some modifications, uh, some existing modifications or some existing uh, fuel, uh, whether it's 82 UL or, or 96, there's a couple of alternative fuels out there that have been uh, specced uh, and uh, uh, have been tested and conform and can work in some airplanes, but they're generally um, low compression engines, uh, albeit designed for and certificated 400 low lead. Uh, as opposed to 80 octane, so um, there's there, those of those three types of aircraft. The the the, the first one and the last one um, could in fact continue to operate. That 30 percentage, 30 percent of of airplanes that kind of require 100 low lead would be um, um, toast or, or beer cans. It always seemed to me that the bigger danger to the supply of leaded gas was uh, the lead. Well, was that the was no? Is because we're a relatively small market uh, that the oil companies might decide just stop making and selling this stuff. Yes. No? Well, that's that's true. Um, and uh, I was fortunate um, earlier this year to sit in a presentation by um, an executive from one of the uh, major oil companies discussing um, fuel availability, both Jet A and uh, Hunter Low Lead. Um, and uh, the numbers I took away from that uh, presentation was nine, nine refineries around the world that produce 100 low lead fuel. At that point, two of them, this was over the summer, early summer, at that point, two of them were shut down for uh, overhaul, essentially, leaving seven um, and of those, only a handful, a very small handful, if any, uh, well, a small handful, were in the United States. The rest were overseas. Um, there, the other issue with Hunter Low Lead is the uh, source of tetraethyl lead, I believe, is in Russia. The only source, remaining source of tetraethyl lead, is in Russia, um, which you know you can you can try to figure out what that means. Um, we need to come up with, and, and we've known, the industry's known about this for some time. Well, there's been research yeah. going on sure. and on and on about it. Uh, sure. Uh, we, we need to come up with an alternative. We've known that for some time. There are um, some some very real um, obstacles to overcome. Um, one of those obstacles, of course, is the economics. Um, there, Right now, there doesn't seem to be a huge urgency uh, to come up with uh, an alternative to 100 low lead that might cost 10 bucks a gallon when the fuel itself is can be had for 455 bucks a gallon. If it didn't exist, if it, you couldn't get it at any price, yeah, maybe the economics would change a little bit. Um, 
I, I don't know. I mean, there, a lot of people smarter and, and more uh, 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 in tune with uh, the dynamics here um, could add a lot to this discussion. I'm not one of them. Yeah. Those electric planes we saw in Oshkosh are looking better and better, huh? Well, they are, um, as long as you fly them in sunshine. Yeah, that's right. Oh, that's another. You're, you're coming right back around to that Florida thing again, aren't you? <laughs> no, I wasn't. I, not intentionally. Not, not in, nasty. Yeah, it, yeah. He thinks yeah. thou doth protest too much. <laughs> another story this week uh, has been that. Uh, let's see now. This is from. I'm looking at a story, and I'm trying to look at now. I have in front of me a story from uh, from an AvWeb story, uh, and a portion of it says the FAA has apparently. At, I said apparently they didn't say apparently. The FAA asked Miami and Houston police forces to try out unmanned aerial vehicles, quote, in urban environments, end quote, for tasks like search and rescue and spotting traffic hazards. And since the policy has been to close large tracts of airspace to normal traffic when UAVs are in the air, it, of course, has raised a question about how these things are going to impact us of us, those of us who fly, you know, everyday airplanes. What do you guys know about this? What's the story? I, well, I, I wasn't even I, aware that we were this far along in having UAVs in non-military situations. Um, yeah, unfortunately we are, and, and uh, a lot of it stems from, um, from, without pointing any fingers in any specific organizations or individuals, uh, what I would call cowboys in, in various law enforcement agencies around the country. Uh, we we do have this um, around the uh, uh, the more the Mexican I can't even talk the Mexican border. We have UAVs patrolling that border. Uh, we have uh, TFRs established to protect the airspace they're flying in. Um, I, I'm going to jump get a jump start here on the shoutouts for this episode. Um, Jim Peters uh, sent me um, um, an, a link to an article last week. Um, down in Houston. This happens to involve a uh, television station down in Houston. Uh, the lead uh, paragraph here is, is, Houston police started testing unmanned aircraft, and the event was shrouded in secrecy, but was captured on tape by Local 2 investigates. And I'll give the, the TV station down there some credit here. Um, they caught wind that something was going on, and you know all these you know uh, law enforcement, local law enforcement types were, you know, going out to this this location some seventy miles northwest of Houston. I understand um, they had to issue bibs after those right. guys saw that fly. Right. Um, and there was no media. There was no media allowed, and and all this kind of stuff. Black trucks, the whole nine yards, and um, basically it was a demonstration of an unmanned aerial vehicle designed um, or at least uh, pitched as a law enforcement tool. Um, the, the only problem with this, and this, this specific episode, as well as the proliferation of these, uh, these aircraft, is they're not certificated uh, to be operating in controlled airspace. And uh, in this instance, um, this UAV, the wingspan of for which was 10 feet, um, said it circled at an altitude of 1,500 feet. Well, that's, uh, depending on the specific area of Texas, that's probably squarely in controlled airspace. Um, 10 foot wingspan, 30 pounds. Uh-huh. And I'm thinking, man, I've seen what a five pound bird right. with a four foot wingspan will right. do to an airplane. Uh, right. You know, that, and unfortunately, 
somebody needs to uh, grab the FAA by the collar in my mind and shake them a little bit because well, no, wait a minute. Let me the, maybe the, the people have been asking agencies, alphabet groups have been asking the FAA to, to work on some standards for these unmanned aerial, aerial vehicles to operate in controlled airspace, some certification standards, some operating rules uh, to address how they'll integrate in with the rest of us when there's no pilot, you know, to, to look out the window. Uh, and they, they don't seem to be making any mileage on that. Now, first of all, correct me. All right, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. Here's my first. My question is: we're not talking about um, autonomous vehicles, right? We're talking about remotely piloted vehicles. Yes. Uh, I think you got to look at them under the same umbrella because yeah. the uh, the ultimate goal here is for these things to be uh, uh, some of these things to be autonomous. You program a mission into their little brain, and off they go, fat, dumb, and happy, okay, uh, well, with somebody ostensibly monitoring what they're doing, but not actually controlling what they're doing. Being mm-hmm. a computer guy, I'll, I'll go stand on the runway to stop the uh, autonomous aircraft from being. In our oh, absolutely! Space it's but it's you know there was a the NTSB investigated this, and and to the NTSB's credit. Well, this this was a uh, 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 an accident involving a predator. The aircraft was destroyed. This was uh, operating along the Mexican border a year or so ago, and uh, um, the aircraft basically just kind of um, um, spooled down and powered off and and dove in and crashed and and the NTSB started peeling the onion here because this thing is operating in controlled airspace and it's a civilian aircraft so it's clearly NTSB's uh, 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 bailiwick here so they started peeling the onion and basically this was this was a remotely piloted vehicle not an autonomous vehicle and the workstation being used uh, to control the aircraft locked up yeah and the operator rebooted it and was trying to get control, trying to return to controlling the airplane. But the protocol aboard the aircraft was such that, for some reason, <laughs> um, the, uh, the protocol is to shut off the fuel. Uh, when when a reboot situation like that happens, which of course makes perfect sense to me, and uh, there was no, the, the, either the, either the operator didn't understand that he had to run that you know uh, fuel on checklist, or he was not aware, uh, or, or I'm sorry, could not run the fuel on checklist, and the aircraft continued down and crashed. Um, in this instance. Um, yeah, this is you know a ten foot forty pound aircraft flying at, at fifteen hundred feet. That's going to make a nice uh, smooth hole in the side of somebody's Skyhawk sometime. Right. right. Yeah, but that Predator is a big airplane. Predator's a big airplane. It's probably the size Predator's of a- uh, of uh, well, it's it's got the wingspan. Um, I don't know, maybe a King Air. Something like that? I don't know. I'd be incredibly surprised if this early in the game they're talking about autonomous vehicles. And if you read, and they don't explicitly say in this story, but the story Well, in this story, they do do say... uh, uh, um, They they talk about transitioning these pilots over to... to No, they they talked about operators from a private firm called uh, In Situ Incorporated manned remote controls from inside the fleet of black trucks as the guests watched a live feed from the high-powered camera aboard the 40-pound aircraft. Right. So here's my, here's my devil's advocate question, which yeah. is, given that these are, in fact, human-piloted pi- uh, aircraft, just remotely piloted, why can't they just fit into the air traffic control and see-and-avoid situation environment? Because well, uh, they can't see. 
Well, I mean, do we know that? I mean, they it, certainly could put they could put imaging into them so that they could probably see better than we see from our, you know, Cessnas. Well, let's even put it, let's put it on these terms. If they want to, if they want to certify the aircraft and certify the pilots, and then certify that they'll operate according to the existing rules, uh, and show that they can do that without a set of eyeballs up there or two sets of eyeballs up there playing see and avoid. Uh, to go along with whatever anti-collision system that they would, in my mind, absolutely, positively not be able to fly in the controlled airspace without, period. Uh, then, yeah, well, we can talk about integrating them into the airspace <laughs> system. <laughs> but without those things, it's just a bunch of rogue aircraft up there operating in airspace that's managed and controlled, regulated by law, by the FAA, in uh, in an atmosphere where the rest of us have to have our fly-in papers, the airplanes, uh, the uh, pilots, everybody except ultralight people. Mm-hmm. And if they want to tell us that this is an ultralight category and, uh, and it, it can meet Part 103, uh, oh, my God, God help us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, well, here's, here's my problem with the whole thing is the people sitting on the ground flying this airplane and supposedly trying to um, avoid other traffic really don't have any skin in this game at all. You know, they can. It's like an air traffic controller. Uh, you know, if 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 the air traffic controller uh, um, flies you into a mountain, uh, the air traffic controller is going to probably feel real bad. You're not going to feel a thing. Controller's um, definitely going home that night. Yeah, tr- controller's definitely going home. Uh, controller screws up, the pilot dies. The pilot screws up, the pilot dies. So, you know, what difference does it make? But uh, th- these guys have no skin in this game. And, and a lot of these guys, um, and I'm sure they're very good at what they do. Uh, what they do, though, is not fly airplanes. They're video game uh, uh, players. That's right. And um, they're not dealing with the turbulence. They're not dealing with uh, the sunspot or the, the glare from the sun and, and you know, a lot of different uh, variables involved in spotting other traffic. Even if you had a 360-degree camera focused out to a half a mile or a mile or 10 miles or something like that sitting on the top of that aircraft, um, you still have to be looking at the camera, just like the pilot in the aircraft has to be looking out the window to spot other traffic. Um, it, 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 the whole thing is um, problematic to me, um, and um, I would point out, you know, and I'm, again, not to put my tinfoil hat on here, but um, there was a crash um, um, in the area between New Orleans and uh, in Mobile, Alabama, um, on October 2302, involved a Cessna caravan. Uh, the airspace down in that in that general vicinity is um, there's a lot of military uh, um, activity. Um, this guy's droning along in a caravan. He's doing package express work, and uh, all of a sudden uh, he's declaring an emergency. He's going down, um, and um, basically hinted out that the hinted that uh, he got hit by another airplane. And uh, they ran the radar tapes. They ran everything they could find. The only airplane near the guy was like a DC-10 at, at you know, twelve or 13,000 feet, you know, and several miles away. Um, you know, and I'm making this up as I go, but the, the basic facts are here. But then they, and I'm, I'm looking at a, an article on CNN.com um, that I uh, came across that I just Googled here. Investigators found red streaks, transfer marks, they call them, on various pieces of the shredded Cessna pulled from the muck. 
the red does not match red mailbags or other objects known to be on the plane. They also found a small piece of black anodized aluminum embedded in the skin of the airplane. The aluminum is not from the accident airplane. Uh-huh. So that tells me somebody, that... Somebody hit him. Was somebody this, did this happen near Roswell, New Mexico? No, this was between, uh, again, between uh, New Orleans and, and Mobile. That's an aliens and UFO joke, Jeb. I, I know, I know. I'm, I'm, <laughs> and, and, and for the what, record, you, you, you make a really you good really, Do you really you think really that look, aliens really would be flying aircraft? Do you, do you really think aliens would be flying aircraft with black anodized aluminum? <laughs> you make a good point, though, that whether or not these uh, these UAV pilots and crew crew members can see and avoid, um, they're real. These are ten feet wingspan, thirty pound airplanes. Are going to be pretty hard for us to see. And, uh, and Jeb, I, I got a quick question let me, let about point, this story. Let me, let me, who who, who one, stepped forward to take responsibility for hitting this caravan? Nobody. Nobody. Yeah, uh huh. And from the story, um, it's the quote is. The National Transportation Safety Board uh, accident investigator, whose name I won't mention, uh, concluded that the aircraft, the caravan, collided in, quote, collided in flight with an unknown object, unquote. And this one is written up on the NTSB's website. Well, duh. Well, duh. That's exactly what happened. (laughs) Well, but here he is at night on an IFR flight plan in U.S. airspace. There shouldn't be any unknown objects. I repeat, UFO. Well, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just as much a believer. Or, or I, I, I go, I'll, go with, I'll go with Jack's initials, unidentified federal object. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. So I guess, yeah, we wanna, <laughs> I guess we want to pay attention to this whole UAV thing, all kidding aside. Well, we, we, we definitely we, do. We definitely absolutely. do. Absolutely. I mean, the noise that AOPA has been making about this uh, is, is not – as Jeb so uh, so so colorfully put it, putting on your tinfoil cap. This is a real issue. This is a real threat. That's a real safety problem. Uh, it's like scary to me that a guy, a professional pilot, doing his job, talking to control, is motoring along one night and gets struck out of the blue by something that nobody could see. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't want Scully and Mulder. Uh, I want somebody from the F freaking B I. Yeah. Real mm-hmm. people. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I, I said that this was between New Orleans and Mobile. That's not correct. It was just east of Mobile, uh, near a town called Spanish Fort, apparently. Um, and um, uh, the pilot, you know. There's a lot of military airspace in that. There's a lot of military place. airspace there associated with Pensacola. Uh, Montgomery, uh, Alabama is not far north from Maxwell Air Force Base. Um, da 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 da. But um, uh, this is again Fort from Rutgers the CNN. There. Yeah, from the CNN story. Um, he was climbing. He was he was cruising at three thousand feet. It was headed east. Um, controller advised him that an inbound DC-10 was flying south at four thousand. I was wrong about the altitudes. Um, controller told uh, the pilot the DC-10 was two miles away at one o'clock and a thousand feet above. Um, um, let's see. Um, Rod, the pilot acknowledges um, the uh, DC-10's insight. At about that time, this caravan began a fairly rapid but apparently controlled descent. Um, dropped from um, 2,900 feet to 2,400 feet in 14 seconds. Pilot radios, I needed to deviate, I needed to deviate, I needed to deviate, I needed, and that's the end of the transmission. Um the aircraft began an uncontrolled descent, ended up in the swamp. 
Mm-hmm. Flight lasted four minutes. And we, so we think this was a UAV that wasn't in the system. We don't know. That the, 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 he collided with an unknown object in flight. Duh. Yeah. Well, uh, okay, first in, thing in, I'm going to do high, is going to write off it being from areas. outer space. Yeah, I, at 4,000 okay, feet over that area. And then you, 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 don't have to, you don't have to take a big leap when the evidence of you know, black anodized aluminum and uh, red paint uh, transfer marks – uh, you know, that pretty bloody definitive that it hit something up there. Uh, I think the odds of it being something that fell out of the sky, you know, inconveniently it happened to encounter this, this, uh, caravan is off the scale, uh, non-starter. Yeah. Uh, ergo, I think we're talking about something that was flying in, in, in controlled airspace that wasn't in the system. Yeah. Jeb, you're going to have to send me that link so I can put it in the show notes. I will be happy to. Uh, the, the, um, the story goes on. Let me, let me just add this because it's a clarification of something I said earlier. The story goes on to say that uh, the radar data retrieved uh, demonstrates that the DC-10 and the caravan uh, never came closer than 1,000 feet in altitude or a mile horizontally and never crossed paths. And that's you know your basic IFR separation and at uh, below eighteen thousand feet, um, everything was copacetic there. Again, they never crossed paths, so it's not a wake turbulence issue. Mm-hmm. So, stick this one with a fork. And so, yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't catch how long ago. Is this still under this, investigation? Well, the the this this occurred October twenty three two thousand two. Okay, so. Um, let me go okay, to And that's the, the NTSB, as they stuff. said, uh, you know, came in contact with an unknown object. That's what you were right. saying earlier. Yeah, yeah okay. that's October that's 23. That's from the final report. Yeah. Well, oh, I guess it would help if I got the right year. Yeah. I'm going to say, no, they scrubbed it. No, no. Cessna 208B, Spanish Fort, Alabama. Um, <clears throat> airport report was modified on... on uh, Probable cause, pilot's spatial disorientation, which resulted in loss of airplane control. Uh, contributing to the accident was the night instrument meteorological conditions with variable cloud layers. Well, I have a response to that, which begins with suck. <laughs> <laughs> family podcast, family podcast. All right, let's move on. Um, so uh, on, uh, let's, let's a little bit more traditional aircraft oh, kind of things. Oh, my God. What? What? I'm just thinking about the difference between the physical evidence and the conclusion. What's uh-huh. that? Yeah, if you go through and you read the physical evidence and you read, it's it's like, huh? Oh yeah, there's some foreign materials there, but he got disoriented. He got disoriented by running into a UAV. Well, that's like the old joke about TWA 800 Saturday Night Live. You know, this just in: uh, uh, the NTSB this week uh, uh, said that the TWA 800 um, explosion was caused by a frayed wire. Um, authorities said the wire became frayed when it was hit by a f- missile fired from, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, we don't want to. Cessna's we don't, we don't watch this to be the aviation conspiracy podcast. Cessna's no. in the news. Let's see now. So there's two Is Cessna, Cessna stories. The they, they do something again this yeah, week? There's been two, <laughs> at least two, two that I've got on my list here. Cessna, spell that for me. Which one do you want to talk about first? Well, that's a coin toss. Uh, 
you know, well, well, folks to the to the good folks up at uh, Columbia Aircraft uh-huh. in, in Oregon. Congratulations on being part of the Cessna family. Uh, it was announced this past week that that Cessna was the high bidder or the the winning bidder, and uh, will be purchasing or is in the process now of completing the purchase of Columbia Aircraft. Yeah, they'll be closing shortly. New management's already moving into offices up in Oregon. Uh, they started moving in yesterday. How do you think this will change either Cessna or Columbia's product line? Other well, than mer- you know, other than combining them, I mean, will it, will you think there'll be a philosophical change here? No, I don't. Uh, I think Cessna will take the best of what it learns, uh, what Columbia has to offer in the way of, uh, of new technology, and, and and apply it to their NGP program, uh, which is you know already kind of follows some of the same lines as the Columbia in, in construction philosophy, design philosophy, except it's a high-wing airplane. Uh, but, uh, you know, this is going to mean a change in the Columbia dealership network. Uh, you know, presumably you'll have to be a Cessna dealer now to sell Columbias, uh, and that's a much larger network. Uh, the folks that own current Columbias, uh, the good news for them is that their warranties are going to be honored by Cessna, the same as if the uh, Columbia aircraft still existed, uh, and uh, they're renaming the uh, the airplanes the Cessna 350 and the Cessna 400, which I kind of thought was interesting because that will uh, uh, kind of make it confusing for all those people that understood Cessna's numbering system for its twins. There were 300 series and 400 series twins. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, that's a that's a change. Cessna now, now has 300 and 400 series singles. Piston singles, right? Uh, presumably, Columbia's uh, sales and production will go up because of the uh, uh, the added cloud of Cessna's dealers network and its support network, which will be you know coming online to take care of Columbia airplanes. Uh, I'm not sure it'll change Cessna's philosophy all that much, except what they're able to uh, absorb and apply and learn in the way of uh, different ways to build airplanes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that's that's good news, I guess. Interesting news that uh, that uh, Cessna's buying Columbia. Columbia. Now, the other news kind of closes out one chapter. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah. Now, the other bit of Cessna news is perhaps more controversial, um, and that is that Cessna has announced this past week that they're going to build their light sport aircraft in China, uh, not here in the U.S. And uh, Correct again. What do you think about that? It's inevitable. Uh-huh. I mean, yeah. well, the fact it doesn't... Go ahead. an overseas supplier was no surprise. I mean, that was, that was not... Everybody in the business that's paid any attention uh, heard long ago that Cessna was looking at overseas manufacturers uh, to, it, at the at the least, build major components on the airplane and then uh, ship them to the U.S. As it turns out, uh, they're going to build the airplane and then crate it and ship it to the U.S. ready to have the wings put back on and uh, uh, fly away, uh, which is kind of the way that... Uh, much the same way that airplanes like the uh, Flight Design CT arrive in the United States from their manufacturer in uh, in Austria. Uh, difference is that this will be arriving from a manufacturer in China, and it, I think it'll be the first time that China has built a uh, a whole airplane 
for uh, an international market or a foreign market. Yeah, for export. Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. Um, I can't get too worked up about it. I, I think it's it's um, you know kind of a logical uh, extension, if you will, of of uh, um, uh, the, the world, uh, the international markets in which we live. China is clearly uh, an economic powerhouse in a lot of different ways. Um, and is is getting more and more so as as uh, Western countries are find themselves in decline, and we can you know get into the politics of all that, but uh, um, they're they're going you know Bethesda's in in business to make money. Uh, they have found a supplier um, who who they believe that can build these airplanes and build them to Cessna standards, and do it at a, at a price that. Uh, uh, Cessna can make money. Uh, everybody comes out in a win-win. Uh, just be sure you get your uh, your tools at Harbor Freight. Mm-hmm. Right. The Xinyang Aircraft Corporation, the Chinese uh, company that uh, yeah. is going to be the producer of this Skycatcher, is a subsidiary of China Aviation Industry Corporation, which is a government-owned operation. Uh, I can't help but uh, believe that they're could be a handful of people in the LSA market that are not going to be happy about dealing with a, a product that's produced by a, the Chinese government in their in their view. Uh, but the uh, the news that the, they were going to finish the airplane over there, which is the way this is planned, and ship it over here, kind of surprises me because that means shipping engines and avionics, uh, largely produced here in the states, uh, electrical hardware and such to China to be assembled in the aircraft and shipped back across the Pacific uh, for delivery here. Uh, seems to add a lot of uh, weight and shipping costs, but it's the L word. good at its numbers. It's the L word. What's the L word? Labor. Yeah. Labor costs. Um, well, speaking of labor, speaking of the L word, Dave, what's the buzz in Wichita? I mean, it, it, yeah, really. were, were they expecting these jobs to be Wichita no, jobs? No, there was no expectation that the Skycatcher was going to generate any any uh, change in, significant change in employment with Cessna here because uh, Cessna has made it no secret for a long time that they were uh, likely to outsource the production of the airplane, and uh, we knew that they were looking at uh, some of the European uh, and Australian uh, companies that already produce light sport airplanes successfully, uh, and we knew that they were looking in Asia. Uh, there mm-hmm. were even some discussions, some recommendations in-house early on in this project that uh, Cessna go straight to work with one of the uh, Czech Republic or Austrian suppliers of LSAs and uh, and work with them to design and build the airplane. So it's it's a, it's a series of decisions, and they've run the numbers. They know what uh, they're, they're asking the airplane to sell for. They know what it, uh, the dealer markup's going to be because they want to sell these through their dealers. Uh, they have an expectation of production of about 700 a year, uh, they know what the engines are going to cost, and they've, uh, I'm sure, scoped out what it's going to cost to ship the Garmin 300 panels and the, uh, and the, well, I'm not sure where the Garmin 300 panels are actually going to come from, manufacturing-wise, but the engines are sure going to come out of, uh, out of Mobile, and uh, ship that all over there, have the airplanes built, and ship it back. Uh, there are going to be other more challenging things, I think, for the Skycatcher long term and, and some inherent advantages it's going to bring to its market long term. Yeah. 
there are a number of other airplanes that have significantly better uh, uh, useful loads. Uh, the Rotax engines are fairly popular among a lot of folks in that that already fly that category of airplane or are coming from ex- light experimental market. Uh, on the other hand, there's nobody in the business that's got a dealer or maintenance network on par with SESTA. Uh, nobody in the LSA market. So that's an advantage that they're going to bring. And you buy a Skycatcher, learn to fly at a Cessna uh, pilot center, and uh, you know, you're going to be flying with a glass panel and uh, a pretty good candidate someday to move up to fly on that G1000 equipped Skyhawk. Yeah, yeah. Or that um, uh, Cessna 400 single. Or that Cessna 400 single. There you go. There you go. Did they? So, uh, we should move on here, but did the, this announcement include any schedule for when they thought they might start delivering these things? Uh, second half of, of uh, 2009 Nine. Is, okay. is what they've been saying. So, yeah. uh, Well, uh, the web piece... Uh, says ex- the, the aircraft prototype is ex- or the aircraft is expected to fly in 08 and begin deliveries in 09. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, first flight in the first half of next year, yeah. first deliveries the second half of the year after. Okay. Dave, what's this and, geo? I'm sorry. You're gonna. I was just gonna say, and there's still time to get your uh, five thousand dollar deposit down uh, mm-hmm. because they're uh, gonna do that through the I think the first thousand airplanes. Yeah, yeah, they they, up in they the have eight hundred range. So. Yeah, so firm orders for eight hundred and fifty Skycatchers. Uh, it's a little bit late to try to get in on a speculative uh, uh, position, but uh, uh, yeah, who knows? Yeah, I'm sorry, Jack. So, Dave, you put this on the list. What is this geocache thing? This is like, uh, is this really an aviation story? What's going on here? Uh, quick way around the hangar here. Okay, uh, for a, a long time now, I've. Uh, been an acquaintance, friend of, uh, had a beer with occasionally, a gentleman named Errol Bader. Got to know him when he worked for Diamond Aircraft. Uh, he was a sales rep for the western U.S. He's still out in the Denver area and is uh, a principal in a uh, company called U.S. Aero, which is a diamond dealer. And uh, earlier this year, Errol published a, a novel called Geocache. Uh, it's kind of a uh, uh, an action novel with a lot of aviation wrapped into it, uh, set in some real places that Errol's visited, traveled to, knows well. Uh, it's got a nice uh, historical sense about some of the European locations where it's set, uh, some interesting uh, aviation scenes, but mostly it's uh, just kind of an interesting little uh, uh, suspense slash action novel uh, about. That is wrapped around this sport called geocache, where somebody hides uh, an item in a cache. They send out clues to help you develop uh, the answer in latitude and longitude on where the location of this is. You find it with your portable GPS. You find the prize, and you put another prize in there for the next person to find. Except in this case, people are being enticed to look for this prize that will ultimately total about $3 million. And when they show up for it, they're murdered. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Okay. Well, you were... You, all right, here's my confession. All right, here's my confession. Uh-huh. I am a geocacher, all right? 
Uh, ah. Actually, I'm not an active one, but I dab. I, I, my brother is a really active geocacher. He's really into this whole thing, and he got me hooked on it for a little while, a couple of years back. And we went tramping through the woods up in New Hampshire, looking for these little Tupperware containers. It, and that trivializes. It. It's kind of fun. I, I, I enjoyed it. And it's a great excuse to get out and about, and you know, kind of hiking and and finding exact, you know, quote unquote, exotic locations and you know, cool spots that you wouldn't have otherwise gotten to. I think it's kind of cool. Providing some initial, uh, some additional tension in this story. But yeah, the murder is part there's, is. Yeah. Is Wait, there, a there young, needs more tension other than the murder part. Oh yeah, part. there's a there's a uh, business executive that's part of a world geocache society, a, a bunch of billionaires, that do this with each other for sport once a month. Uh, he's injured in a helicopter crash. Uh, come to find out, he's got a, 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 a fatal illness that can be possibly cured with a bone marrow transplant. So his top assistant is scouring Europe for three people that have a match in bone marrow, blood type and all that. And they happen to be some of the same people that are being enticed to their own death by the villain at the geocache sites. So there's a lot going on here. It's a lot of fun. Uh, I don't do a lot of recreational reading, I'll, I'll confess. But I started reading Errol's novel while doing a deep virus scan on my computer one afternoon. And uh, within about three or four days of that, I got myself all the way through it. Uh, Times when the email was down or I was waiting for the computer to boot up for the third time or something like that. Or just needed a break from what I was doing. So we'll have a link on the website to where you can read about the novel, Geocache, and about Errol Bader, uh, who's a very active pilot nice guy uh, and where you can uh, where you could order one if you know somebody that might like something like that for Christmas I, I would add I'm looking at uh, I looked at his website and I looked at uh, um, the, the uh, uh, amazon.com page and uh, I'm getting the the last one um, that they have in stock right now so um, they will have more but I'm, I'm buying it right now so never mind <laughs> Go away, leave me alone. So there are just oh so many Dave reading a book jokes that I'm I'm <laughs> so many straight lines, so that's little right. time. That's right. The uh the Oh that's not a pretty picture at all. The FAA has extended the uh comment period for the ADSB NPRM. Uh Yay. is this just routine or is there something going on here? No, this is not routine. Uh I mean it- in it. Uh, don't want to put it on those. Uh, you generally. You don't think it's routine? Extension uh, period because either uh, there's such an uproar over a proposal that everybody says, you know, you got to go back and start over, or people uh, clamor for more time because of how com- complex and and or far-reaching the proposal is. And uh, in this case. Uh, the complexity and the reach of this particular notice of proposed rulemaking uh, uh, prompted a couple of the alphabet groups, most notably AOPA and NBAA, to ask the FAA to extend the comment period. Uh, the FAA agreed and gave us an extra 60 days. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting. So do we think anything will come out of this, or, or is it just just gives us more time to reach the same conclusion? Well, uh, there hopefully will be some things come out of it. I mean, uh, uh, you know, there's no argument among 
pretty much anybody active in aviation that uh, air traffic control needs to move beyond the radar bases it operates on now and that there's so much unrealized potential in things like GPS and wide area augmentation systems and uh, uh, vertical navigation performance approaches uh, that the radar system uh, doesn't really support. Uh, and ADSB is uh, is a way to to move some of those forward, not all of them. Uh, move a lot of those forward uh, to improve airspace capacity, improve the ability to operate traffic closely together in high saturation environments, and still be able to keep safe separation. Uh, for example, Jim mentioned the uh, the IFR separation standard uh, uh, at lower altitudes. Uh, that's uh, governed in large part by, well, as is it at higher altitudes, by the sweep rate of the radar antenna that keeps track of uh, traffic in flight. And, uh, you know, in some of those sectors, you're talking about a pretty good time between targets moving at very high speed. So they increase the standard to five miles. Uh, and then before uh, reduced vertical separation standards, it was 2,000 vertical and five miles horizontal. Now we can do five miles horizontal and one, I mean, 1,000 feet vertical. Yeah. ADSB would let them close up a lot of the separation standards around the uh, uh, busier airports. Uh, it would make transiting high-density airspace safer for everybody. Uh, the potential is there for us to all see where everybody else is in the system. But it's not going to be cheap, and just plugging in the equipment doesn't mean that we realize the potential of the equipment. So uh, there's a, uh, an estimate out there that it'll cost the average pilot about $9,000 to equip just to meet the ADSB out requirements uh, proposed in this NPRM. So having more time to talk about it for the alphabet groups to analyze it, for them to kind of give us some hints on what they think uh for us to make up our own minds and make our own recommendations. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's important stuff. I mean, it's going to be with us yep. the rest of our natural lives. Yep. 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 The, the new uh, deadline for public comment is March 3. Uh-huh. We're, you know, we're running long today. We've got a couple other things we want to talk about, but I am curious about one thing. In general, um, commenting on NPRMs, is this something that a layman would do or – Absolutely. How does Absolutely, that work? Yeah. What, what? Yeah. Uh, it, it's it's called a public comment period for the public to comment, and I don't mean to say that you know. No, I mean uh, I, I, and that's what I'm curious about. Are, typically, are is the nature of these comments technical or legal, or are they just sort of preferential? You know, I don't like this idea. You know, or well, it can be a very simple uh, um, screw you and the horse you rode in on. Uh, yeah. It can be very detailed, and, and that one and, is always oh so effective. And that one is always, oh, so effective. Uh, it can be very detailed and very reasoned and, and very legalistic also and everything in between. Uh -huh. uh, the punchline here is, is um, at least for the time being, uh, the public still has, by law, the ability to comment on, on these kinds of proposals. Um, you can by do law, it through a website, too. Yeah, that's right. You can do it through a website, regulations.gov. Uh, and uh, if you poke around there, uh, we, we'll see if we can put up a link to the uh, or some some instructions on how to access this particular rulemaking uh, and the comment area associated uh -huh. with it. But uh, if you poke around there long enough, you'll find the rulemaking. You'll find a bunch of other rulemakings uh, um, affecting not only aviation but a lot of other activities in which uh, our listeners might be engaged. 
and um, you're free to comment on the spot um, electronically on all of these regulations. Um, do um, comments have an impact? Uh, unequivocally, yes. Um, I remember back in the late 70s, the uh, FAA had a proposal to um, drastically increase the number of Back then, they were called terminal control areas, or TCAs, basically the same airspace today we know as Class B. Uh, drastically increased the number of TCAs around the country in the aftermath of a uh, mid-air collision between a um, GA airplane and a 727. Um, they got... That was a pretty significant turning point in... Uh, it was a very significant turning point. Um, they got uh, something on the order of 20,000 comments, the most that the agency had ever gotten on any rulemaking ever, uh, all of which were, were uh, you know, most of which, I said, you know, 99.9% of which were opposed to it. And the agency really had no choice uh, but to back down from that proposal. Different times, different um, uh, different ways to skin a cat, uh, if you will, vis-a-vis um, the the uh, ways in which agencies respond to rulemakings. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 an integral part of uh, of this process. Interesting, interesting. In other news, out of Washington, uh, Senator Lott has uh, is going to be leaving this leaving the Senate, um, and that's significant to us. Why? He is uh, ranking uh, Republican on the, I believe it's Senate Aviation Subcommittee, if not the um, uh, Senate Commerce, Science, and Transportation Committee. Uh, But he has been very involved in uh, um, supporting the concept of user fees uh, in the FAA reauthorization bill that we've talked about ad nauseum here over the last few months. his departure, which is not until it, it will occur between now and the end of the year, uh, because he wants to, uh, from all all available reports, he wants to avail himself. Uh, he wants to get out of the Senate before rules change makes it uh, less advantageous uh, for him to do so. Uh, and that rule change goes into effect on January one, so he's out of there. Um, Who steps up? Everybody goes up. The next, uh, yeah, the next the, whoever the next uh, in seniority is on the committee, um, and I don't know who that is offhand. Yeah, so it it may not make any difference, and it may make a big difference. Yes, it may make a big difference. Um, um, earlier on in this in this process, and I'm going to punt and say maybe June or July or August in that time frame, um, lot and. Uh, Senator Rockefeller of West Virginia, uh, Rockefeller being the chairman of the Senate Aviation Subcommittee, um, had basically put out their Senate bill with user fees in it, 70 cents a gallon or whatever it was for for general aviation aircraft, um, and uh, said, you know, this is what the Senate wants. This is what we're going to accept. Uh, We're going to take our marbles and go home, and you all figure out, you know, what you're going to do about it, but this is what we're going to do. And um, Lot, of course, was a major integral part of that. Um, if he's now that he's leaving, uh, it's clear that uh, at least um, Rockefeller won't have Lot as an ally. There may be another ally on this topic, but uh, the whole thing could be uh, could be um, status quo. It could be um, a very interesting time. Um, uh, if, if Senate. 
Senate Finance Committee has seen this issue differently than the yep. uh, uh, Senate Aviation Subcommittee, where Senator Lott and, and Rockefellers uh, imposed this. And like uh, like Jeb said, they kind of threw down the gauntlet and said, uh, you're going to live with this or something like it, and we're going to make it painful for you if you don't. Uh, Senate Finance Committee said, no. Uh, yeah. We're going to stick with fuel taxes and uh, ticket taxes and excise fees and the current system and no user fees, and neither side has budged. That's right. <clears throat> yeah. Well, we'll see. Dave, you sent us some uh, links to a uh, some websites with uh, pictures of a cool old airplane. Oh yeah, a friend of mine from down in Oklahoma uh, gets around the country a little bit flying. So you can yeah, always uh, tell. You can always tell when Dave. I'm. I'm going to stall Dave while you're doing while you're opening web pages. We can tell that you're opening web pages uh-huh, because uh-huh. Your, your Skype connection kind of gets a little fuzzy and weird. So. It's, it's digital. It's, it's a digital thing. Right. Yeah. So yeah, it gets uh, digital. What's what's uh, we'll the story? Have a link of the- on the site, but uh, the Dutch Colony Inn in Reading, Pennsylvania, uh, which had a, an adjoining restaurant, closed uh, recently. And uh, the building's going to be torn down so that uh, yet another shopping center can be built. And the restaurant, wow, I'm the so happy to hear it. Restaurant had a 1927 model coupe model 70 hanging from the ceiling. Now, it had been there since hang on a sec. Hang on a second, because the vast majority of our listeners aren't going to have clue one on what a monocoupe is. Well, we could get to that. Mono, oh, well, Mono excuse 7, me. 1927 was a hot single-wing airplane in an age when the, the predominant configuration was biplanes. Uh, it's an old tailwheel airplane. Uh, subsequent monocoupes had great reputations for going really fast on a little horsepower. Uh, there was even an attempt to resurrect the, uh, the monocoupe back in the late 90s, 1990s, uh, that uh, unfortunately didn't go anywhere. Uh, But this 1927, it's an original airplane, was restored in the 60s, flown, then retired and installed in the ceiling uh, above the dining floor of this restaurant. And now it's getting to move back to the museum uh, where they're going to work on it and bring it up to speed and fly the puppy. Yeah, the final picture in this series that you sent us shows it out on the grass at a uh, what what from this little view we've got of it here it looks like a pretty cool little airport. I can't quite yeah. make out what the name of it is. What does it say here? That's the second link that I uh, sent. There is the oh, link. So that's the, the that's itself. the airport of the museum. Yeah. Ah, okay. And so, what's that museum? The Golden Age Air Museum in uh, Bethel, Air Museum. Bethel, Pennsylvania. Well, yeah. that's kind of cool. We're going to have to go there. That's not the so far away. The gentleman that owns I the airport and the museum camped with some friends of mine at Oshkosh uh, a few times, my, my crazy friends at the Cajun condo. Ah, yeah. And uh, so that's how this linkage uh, happened is uh, um, our good buddy Joe Champagne, who's yeah. the chairman and, and, and uh, lead chef and party instigator at the Cajun condo. You make me laugh. You're describing anybody as the chairman of the Cajun condo. I don't know. It's it's, it's uh, oh such a structured and organized group. Yeah. Well, every year Joe shows up over a week ahead of time. Yeah. Uh, with, uh, with his uh, flags a large and his part of a campsite stuffed into his uh, into his luscombe. 
Uh-huh. And uh, amazing what he gets out of that thing. And he sets up this room-sized tent and a uh, you know a uh, family-sized cooler and strings his hammock, puts up his signs, drags over a picnic table, and the rest of the crowd just kind of shows up. That's right. Look for the flags, right? You gotta, if That's right. If you're uh, looking for them, they're over in the trees there south of uh, – <laughs> we're, we're, we're drifting into Oshkosh talk again, aren't we, huh? All yeah, right. uh, camps in Vintage behind the hangar cafe there. So. That's yeah, vintage, vintage camping. That's yep, right. Yep, yep. So the Monaco, very cool airplane. Uh, you have to yeah, check out cool the pictures. And, uh, and if you're in that part of the country, nice little museum. And uh, uh, if you ever get a chance to ride in a Monocoupe, oh, my God, have at it. It's from a time long past. Yeah, yeah. Uh, off-field landing of the week. So this is an interesting one. Um, this is a story from uh, from Avweb, as so many of our stories are, oddly or not oddly. Sometimes things just go from bad to worse, according to the Thunder Bay Chronicle Journal. Jack, hang on. Jack, hang on a second. I think Dave just somehow logged off. Hang on. Okay, Dave. Go away, Dave. I'm going to call you in a second here. All right. You back? I don't know what happened. Uh, yeah, well, you know, <laughs> we heard your Skype connection kind of coming and going there, so I'm not surprised that it dropped out here. Anyways, uh... Yeah, take it from the top. Jack. So, uh, so like I said, this is a story from uh, our friends at Avweb. Uh, it's uh, sometimes things just go from bad to worse, according to Thunder Bay <laughs> Chronicle Journal. A 25-year-old Timmins, Ontario pilot faces a fine of up to ten thousand dollars in a chain of events that began with a successful emergency road landing and ended with his badly damaged Grumman American in a ditch after an aborted takeoff. The, the aircraft apparently had engine problems while in, on a flight to Thunder Bay, and the pilot set it down on a gravel road near the hamlet of Herkett, Ontario, about 80 kilometers east of Thunder Bay. The pilot apparently fixed the problem to his satisfaction, and that's when the real trouble started, the story says. The pilot tried to take off, but the aircraft slipped on some ice and slid into a ditch. According to witness Jim White, the plane's nose gear sheared and there's damage to the main gear, wings, and nose. Quote, it hit the ditch pretty good, said White, who helped the pilot push the damaged plane onto his property. The pilot was reported shaken, but not seriously... But not, but not stirred. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but not seriously hurt, the story says. <laughs> to, but to make a bad day worse, police arrived to inform the pilot he's allegedly violated provincial laws concerning roadway takeoffs. According to Ontario law, before anyone flies off a road, the aircraft has to be checked for airworthiness, and the pilot must be called... Uh, and the police, oh, must, police be must be called to uh, barricade a section of the road to accommodate the takeoff. The pilot will be okay. in court to face charges on February 25th. So, so congratulations for the successful emergency landing. Man, that sucks. <laughs> I wonder. If, yeah, yeah. I wonder if that fine's covered after you pay your insurance deductible. <laughs> yeah. There was an episode several. Well, I will say several years ago, two or three years ago. Um, guy lands. Uh, um, Cessna 210, a Centurion, on a suburban street. Uh, engine problem, fuel problem, don't know what the deal was. Uh, landed uh, without a scratch. No, no issues. Fixed the problem. I think they added fuel to it. Trucks in some fuel from a nearby airport. The police get together and, and uh, they block off the road, give him a nice, clean you know, runway to take off. Uh, he's on the takeoff roll, and his right wing tip catches a parked truck, mm-hmm. and and just totally trashes the airplane. Right, 
And there's a video of this out there on the web somewhere. We'll try to find it. I think, yeah. I think we've actually had an in-past show. Have we, have, have we done that? Maybe. Okay, never I'm not mind. sure. It's familiar. But, uh, yeah, it's, it, it sucks when you do good up until huh. that point, and then, oops. But, well, met, uh, a guy, met a guy at Spirit of St. Louis, uh, must have been 10 years ago, who'd uh, had an electrical problem and was losing power to talk, and he was near the controlled airspace for Spirit. I think, as a matter of fact, he was inside their space. And uh, put the airplane down on the road, uh, on a road off the airport property. Uh, got some help from the FBO, got the airplane uh, fixed and running, got the electrical problem uh, uh, all, all settled out. And before he could go, he had to talk to the uh, uh, flight standards district office people. Uh, he had to provide an inspection report from a mechanic that said it was airworthy. He had to produce a uh, uh, takeoff and climb performance uh, uh, calculation to give to the FAA so they knew how far down the road to have the police block off the road. Where to put the ambulance. Yeah. <laughs> and the guy the guy got it off the ground a uh, little bit of a fight on gravel road and a crosswind but he got it off the ground and didn't hit any poles or any wires and uh brought it over to spirit and set it down where they went over everything a second time to make sure that uh, you know everything was good to go uh he said it was uh uh, as short a flight as it was, he was never happier to get back on the ground in his yeah. life as he was after that. Yeah. I'll so bet. don't try this at home without talking to somebody. Well, no. So, so that your example, Dave, is here in the U.S. The story, yeah. the off-field landing of the week, was in uh, Canada, yeah. um, where one would imagine. I mean, the regulations could be different. I mean, so you yeah. are required to. Is this because the aircraft was? you know was not working properly that it had to be inspected for example i've been under the impression that assuming that it's safe you know like there aren't you know pedestrians around um isn't it legal to land on a road and then take off they do it out in the you know sky king did it all the time sky king did it depends on the state law it depends on state law not federal law Uh uh-huh yeah and it may or may not be legal and it may or may not be legal in certain jurisdictions within the same state i see and I think the reason that this young uh, this this pilot had to jump through all the hoops that he had to jump through is because a he talked to the FAA, and b he was inside the uh, uh, airspace for uh, Spirit Tower. Oh yeah, so he was right. going to be taking off in controlled airspace. Uh, he was going to be flying in airspace that had IFR traffic in it at the time, as opposed to uncontrolled airspace. That's right. As opposed to. Uncontrolled airspace. Ta-da. Right. Dun, 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 dun. Uh, uh, well, this is just more than enough. Any uh, any uh, final thoughts before we finish up here? Any any uh, short takes? Any? Well, there's there was something I saw here. Um, um, I can't put my fingers on it right now. Newsday um, magazine uh, newspaper, I should say, is uh, uh, reporting the Airline Passenger Association head Dave Stempler is calling for all private aircraft to be banned from New York LaGuardia Airport because they interfere with and delay all these other passengers. Um, it's just more of the same. Those damn uh, little airplanes. Those damn little you know, airplanes. He's, he's he's been he's been around for he's been around for twenty and, years at least, and he's been so effective. <laughs> uh, 
because his, the, the arguments are always so uh, well well reasoned uh, uh-huh. and, and unselfish, and uh, and and yet another in a long line of WTF exclamation <laughs> point question Whisk, whiskey tango foxtrot that's whiskey right whiskey tango foxtrot so or um, Sierra tango foxtrot uniform yeah. All right. Anything else? We could qualify that that idea for the tail hook of the week, and we don't mean the kind that's used on an aircraft carrier. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, thank you, boys. As usual, it's a pleasure. I appreciate your uh, giving up uh, part of your Friday afternoon, Friday evening here to uh, get together in the hangar. You're all headed out for hot dates tonight, right? That's why we had to do this a little bit earlier on Friday evening. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's right. exactly right. That's the your local story, con- and you're sticking to it. The local constabulary has been notified, uh-huh. and... All systems are go. Okay. Well, thanks again. Uh, you want to learn more about Dave and his work, you can uh, check out his website at uh, davehigdon.com. And uh, Jeb, you can uh, find out more at jebburnside.com, also aviationsafetymagazine.com and avweb.com. Me at jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. And all of us are hanging out at uh, uncontrolledairspace.com. So uh, thank you, everyone, for joining us here in the virtual hangar. And we'll talk to you all again next time. 